The Bible is the most printed, most purchased, and most read book in the world. It is available in hundreds of different languages and has been the subject of countless commentaries, treatises, and explanations. For years, we at Tomorrow's World have been sounding the alarm that general knowledge and understanding of this book is trending in the wrong direction. That interest in the Bible is waning is sure, and it is very concerning. Yet for those who are interested, there are innumerable resources to aid in your study. We make a point of offering study guides, courses, and detailed explanations of difficult biblical concepts free of charge. Yet there is one fundamental biblical question which arises frequently and yet is all too often met with a collective shrug of the shoulders, a meaningless platitude, or an answer that doesn't match what we see in the world around us. This question is asked any time we are faced with calamity, whether that be on an individual basis or collectively. How often have others, with complete sincerity, offered it's all part of God's plan as a source of comfort in times of trouble? The problem is, that is often as far as anyone goes in describing that plan. The difficult follow-up that we have to ask is, if this is part of God's plan, then what is that plan? Why do the major professing Christian churches of the world lack a satisfactory answer to that question? Because they have thrown out an aspect of this book, the Bible, that provides a key to understanding. They are trying to solve a puzzle after defiantly throwing out one of the most important pieces. Can you know God's plan? To the world, if there is a God, any plan he might have is a mystery. There is an explanation for man and his troubles. And by the end of this program, you will be on your way to understanding it. Welcome to Tomorrow's World. Humanity is facing a difficult and uncertain time. Countless individuals are finding life to be a struggle, a struggle with depression, a struggle for survival, a struggle to find purpose. People are more divided than at any time in recent history, and even amidst these difficult times, hurricanes, earthquakes, and other crises can pop up without warning. The suffering that exists in our present world presents an important question that cannot be brushed aside. It can be phrased in many different forms, but it is well summarized by the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The existence of evil and suffering in our world seems to pose a serious challenge to belief in the existence of a perfect God. If God were all-knowing, it seems that God would know about all of the horrible things that happen in our world. If God were all-powerful, God would be able to do something about all of the evil and suffering. Furthermore, if God were morally perfect, then surely God would want to do something about it. And yet we find that our world is filled with countless instances of evil and suffering. These facts about evil and suffering seem to conflict with the orthodox theist claim that there exists a perfectly good God. This argument is not new. If you're a regular viewer of Tomorrow's World, then you'll know that our stance on the existence of a morally perfect God is clear and uncompromising. When disaster strikes, those who are adversarial to the existence of God are quick to ask, why didn't God prevent it? So how do we explain the existence of disasters and suffering? Many rightly point out that the coexistence of such evil with a perfectly moral creator 
can only be logically consistent if there is some greater good being worked out. In times of trial and crisis, you'll often hear the religious community respond to such questions with, it's all part of God's plan, and God works in mysterious ways. We have to trust Him. However, very little of God's plan is ever offered to explain why God allows evil to exist. Offering up a platitude that we can't know God's plan is not consistent with the text through which God is revealed. The prophet Amos was inspired to record the following. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. This doesn't mean that God is going to send out an email or a group text warning of any event before it occurs. But something as fundamental as his overall plan must be revealed and understandable so that suffering can be understood through the context of what God is trying to accomplish. So, what is that plan? In order to really delve into that, we first have to dispel a common interpretation of God's plan for man. This interpretation is so common that most accept it without giving it a second thought. Before we get into this false understanding, I'd like to mention today's featured offer, a booklet titled, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. We'll be offering this booklet throughout the program. Simply call the number on your screen or visit our website. As always, this is available at no cost to you. What is this common misconception about God and His plan that so many have accepted without questioning? It exists in many forms and with various particulars, but ultimately boils down to the concept of God and Satan being locked in an eternal competition over the souls of mankind. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and your acceptance to heaven is assured. Meanwhile, Satan is doing his best to prevent that by any means necessary. What this means for you is that the purpose of your life is to complete this test to determine your eternal fate, hellfire or pearly gates. Like all deceptions, there are shards of truth here. The idea of two paths, right and wrong, is biblical. But there is a lot here that does not stand up to examination through either the lens of scripture or that of the world around us. In the context of disasters, how does the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, which left more than 200,000 dead, work to accomplish God's plan? Acts 4 and verse 12, in reference to Jesus, tells us that, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I would argue that of those 200,000 dead, there were many children who had never heard the name of Jesus and certainly never had his life presented to them in a manner befitting a genuine opportunity to accept him as their savior and to seek his way of life. As children, their brains were not yet fully developed, their character not yet determined. If their lives served as a sufficient test to determine if they deserved heaven or hell, then surely the test for most has been made overly complicated. I'm sure there are some watching this who have lost children, and please don't let this statement discourage you. There is hope for them, and if you stick with me throughout the program, I will explain the tremendous hope in store for them. Here's another difficult point to consider if you believe that God is locked in a struggle with Satan in an attempt to offer salvation to all now. If God is trying to save everyone now, then you worship a God who is losing. Don't believe me, believe your Bible. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. 
He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan deceives the whole world. This was written at a time after the death of Christ. Are those souls lost to eternal hellfire forever? Now consider a statement made by Christ that was important enough for him to repeat it more than just once in the matter of a few verses. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is repeated in verse 65. No one can come to Christ unless God calls them. If God has called everyone at this time, then these verses serve little purpose, if any at all. This is confirmed by Paul in his first epistle to the church at Corinth. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now contrast that with the statement made through Peter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's put these clear statements together. God is not calling everyone now. Yet none can come to Christ without being called. And none can be saved without coming to Christ. Yet it is not according to God's will, His plan, that any should perish. But again, remember, God is not calling everyone now. How can these statements all be true unless we are missing something? We're trying to put together a puzzle, but are missing an essential piece. We'll examine what happened to that essential piece when we return, but in the meantime, I do hope that you'll take us up on our offer to send you The Holy Days, God's Master Plan, free of charge. This booklet will change how you interpret the Bible and help you to understand just what it is that God is doing and the purpose for man's existence. Welcome back. On today's program, we're asking if it is possible for you to know God's plan. We've already looked at a false interpretation of what His plan could be, and touched on the need for a key in order to make all the pieces before us fit together into an understandable message. In order to find that piece, we should begin by asking how such an important piece became lost in the first place. We already saw in Revelation how Satan deceived the whole world, but let's read it again. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The question must be asked, how has Satan deceived man and kept him from understanding the plan of God? There are many parts to the answer of that question, but to look at one, we need to look to the history of professing Christianity. The key to understanding God's plan rests in a doctrine that was taught and exemplified by Jesus Christ. His apostles, long after his death, continued in this doctrine, setting the right example. However, in the centuries after the lives of the apostles, this doctrine was attacked, labeled a heresy, and ultimately replaced with man's traditions found nowhere in Scripture. Second century Rome was a very different world than the one we live in today. While the empire allowed unification on a scale that had not yet been seen in the Western world, the size of the empire, combined with the lack of today's communication and transportation technologies, allowed for significant differences to begin appearing in various regions where Christianity had spread. While Easter may seem like an uncontroversial church tradition for many today, it was one of the most contentious topics of the time period. You see, there is no record in Scripture of Christ 
God, or any of the apostles celebrating Easter or instructing anyone else to do so. This seems an especially glaring omission in the latter writings of John. His three epistles, as well as the book of Revelation, were written up to 60 years after the death of Christ. While the church centered at Rome tried to impose a stringent date for Easter, the congregations of Asia Minor, which were deeply connected to John's ministry, held a different spring observance as holy. Polycrates, who was taught by a disciple of John, was an early church leader presiding over the church in Ephesus, a congregation John himself had overseen towards the end of his ministry. The early historian Eusebius sets the stage for us. A question of no small importance arose at that time, for the parishes of all Asia, as from an older tradition, held that the fourteenth day of the moon, on which day the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should be observed as the feast of the Savior's Passover. Polycrates' letter to Pope Victor responding to demands to abandon the Passover in favor of the non-biblical celebration of Easter traditions is very telling. We observe the exact day, neither adding nor taking away. For in Asia also great lights have fallen asleep, which shall arise again on the day of the Lord's coming, when he shall come with glory from heaven, and shall seek out all the saints. Among these are Philip, one of the twelve apostles, John, who was both a witness and a teacher, who reclined upon the bosom of the Lord. All these observed the fourteenth day of the Passover according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And my relatives always observed the day when the people put away the leaven. I, therefore, brethren, who have lived sixty-five years in the Lord, and have met with the brethren throughout the world, and have gone through every holy scripture, am not affrighted by terrifying words. For those greater than I have said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Polycrates was not willing to yield to those who would replace the holy days of God with the invented celebrations of men. One of the basic tenets of Christianity is that its adherents should seek to be like Christ. I challenge you to read through the gospel account recorded by John with a colored pencil, any color you like. As you read, every time that it mentions Christ keeping the Passover, Pentecost, otherwise called the Feast of Weeks, or simply something described as the Feast, highlight that text. Then reread and see how central an aspect of his life it was. It is well known that his ministry repeatedly brought him through Jerusalem. An honest evaluation of the scriptures reveal that his trips to Jerusalem were in adherence to the instruction to keep the holy days, even doing so under threat of death. John 7 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Then Jesus said to them, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Here Jesus instructs his brothers to keep the feast. Then John reveals that he did so as well, despite the dangers. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. But surely, as some churches contend, Christ kept those days so that you wouldn't have to. The moment he died, those holy days were done away with, as far as any real Christian is concerned. That may very well be the lie that you have been told. Paul didn't believe that lie. 
Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is urging his followers to keep the holy days of God, even referring to the same leavening which Polycrates later wrote about putting out. This verse also provides a key to understanding that it is through God's holy days, which the world has been deceived into abandoning, that we can truly understand God's plan. That's why the booklet we're offering today is titled, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. It details each one of the holy days observed by Jesus Christ and His apostles, and how they represent seven steps in God's plan of salvation. A plan which should be a source of hope for all mankind, but instead is obscured because some have made an effort to hide it, so the puzzle cannot be solved. Whether it's your first time watching or if you've been a regular viewer for years, the opportunity is yours to receive this life-changing information free of charge. Don't make the same mistake of ignoring this vital tool. I'm glad you're still with us. Today's program covers an essential question that you need to examine. Can you know God's plan? In times of trouble, we often cite God's plan as a source of comfort and hope. But unless we know what that plan is, it offers little comfort and little hope. In the last portion of our program, we examined how early church leaders detested and ultimately rejected the biblical holy days observed by Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the first century church. While this answers the question of how this vital piece of the puzzle went missing, it does not tell us how that piece sets the entire picture into perspective. The last scripture we referenced is a good starting point. Paul urged the congregation at Corinth to observe the Passover in Days of Unleavened Bread. I should add that this congregation was made up primarily of Gentiles rather than those of Jewish heritage, disproving the theory that the Holy Days were for the Jews alone. He wrote to them, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The Passover that was observed by ancient Israel served the purpose for the New Testament church of pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The imagery is unmistakable. A lamb sacrificed whose spilt blood paid for the freedom of God's people. Many professing Christians believe that this was the climax of God's plan. That once Christ's sacrifice occurred, all one had to do in order to be saved was to accept Him and all else would be taken care of. This is a lie. Christ's sacrifice requires a response. If Passover points to this important element of salvation, then could we assume that the other holy days also point to prominent milestones in God's plan? In a scripture that some twist to do away with the holy days, Paul actually instructs his followers that the holy days serve to foreshadow or predict what is to come. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. We could spend an entire program on this verse, but we need to realize, and most marginal references admit, that the term translated here as substance is literally body, and the word is does not appear in the original. This means that the passage is ultimately stating, let no one judge you regarding a festival, or new moon, or Sabbath, but the body of Christ. Only the body of Christ should judge on these matters. What is the body of Christ? His church. But the key that I want to focus on 
is that he states that these observances are a shadow of things to come. They foreshadow future events. We just saw how Passover foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We must understand that the holy days used the harvest seasons of ancient Israel to illustrate a powerful point. The harvest in Israel was centered around two primary harvests, an early, smaller harvest, followed by an all-encompassing latter harvest. In fact, one of the festivals, the Day of Pentecost, is also referred to in Scripture as the Feast of Firstfruits. Those who are called by God at this time are given the title in the Bible as Firstfruits. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. The term firstfruits is rendered meaningless if all mankind fills this role at the same time. Even if this role is only for a portion of mankind, but there are none left to follow later, this term is inconsequential. Firstfruits can only make sense in the context of others coming along later. Here we need to turn to the book of Revelation. I should add that we are just giving a very brief overview of this concept. We don't have time to go into each holy day in detail and spell out the simplicity, the equity, and the beauty of God's plan. So I do hope that you'll take us up on our offer and order today's free booklet. It provides the details that we lack the time to discuss on today's program. The problem of evil described by philosophers is not a problem at all. Ultimately, God will destroy evil and remove its source once mankind is ready to follow God's instruction. The suffering of this present age is the result of man withdrawing from God and breaking his laws. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Another step in God's plan requires the removal of Satan. His influence has blinded the world as we've discussed previously, and mankind cannot succeed while his influence is present. The imagery of these verses mirror the traditional observance of the Day of Atonement described in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. It is a required step before this greater harvest described in the next verses. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This verse describes the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ, with his first fruits fulfilling leadership roles. Who will they be leading? They will be aiding Jesus with this second, larger harvest. They will aid in the calling and teaching of the rest of humanity. This marvelous future event is depicted through the Feast of Tabernacles. In the early portion of today's program, I brought up the logical paradox described as the problem of evil. I asked what part of God's plan could allow for a child's life to be taken without their receiving any opportunity to be called into God's way of life. The reality, described by the last of God's holy days, is that even those who have died will live again and be given a genuine opportunity to come to know their Creator and to choose if they want to live His way of life. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. 
This rest of the dead includes those who God did not call during their lifetimes. Ezekiel graphically depicts this event in what is often described as the Valley of Dry Bones. In Ezekiel 37, he sees a mass grave where an army had been slaughtered. God then brings these bones back to life and points to a time when he will do so for all Israel and beyond. The words God inspired prove that there is a resurrection of the dead where those who did not truly know God will be given the chance to do so. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. They were cut off from God. They saw themselves as having no hope. Yet God prophesied that they will live again, and then they will know God, indicating they didn't before. And then they will be given God's spirit, a spirit of obedience. This is the lesson of God's plan. He is calling some now, but he is not calling everyone right now. But he is true to his word, which he inspired Peter to record, that it is not according to his will that any should perish. Yes, some will choose disobedience, and even after being given a genuine opportunity, will reject God's way of life. However, the vast majority of mankind has not yet been given that opportunity. Those who died having never heard of Jesus Christ, those who died with a false understanding of who he is and what he represents, will live again and then shall know God and be given an opportunity to receive his spirit. This is the hope that is extended to all mankind, the hope that we must turn to for encouragement no matter what difficult times we may live in. I've given you the condensed version of this plan. The executive summary, which left out many of the finer details, I cannot overstate the value of today's featured offer. This booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan, shows how you can turn theoretical knowledge into practical knowledge by physically observing these festivals. God provides a yearly reminder of His plan because it is important to Him that His people are aware of what He is doing. However, we cannot know if we throw away this all-important piece of the puzzle. Order your copy today and be sure to tune in every week as Gerald Weston, Stuart Bohovich, and I continue to elaborate on God's magnificent plan and the future he has in store, which we refer to as tomorrow's world.